Um, our Father, we thank you so much for your grace, and we thank you for this evening. I thank you for this group, um, many familiar faces, um, some new. Um, and so, God, we, we thank you for it all. And uh, God, we do thank you for even the time that we have together uh, to, to sit under the preaching of your word, and myself included, um, and to be challenged and to hear from you. Um, and so, God, we do pray that you would grab our attention, uh, that you would arrest our hearts, um, and that you would cause us uh, to not only comprehend what you have to say to us in your word, but also uh, the, uh, not, not just the comprehension, but also the ability to, to live uh, the truths out in our lives. And so, Father, we do pray that, and, and we do seek transformation. And so, Father, we thank you. We ask all in Christ's name. Amen. All right. So, uh, if you uh, have not been coming to our high school group for a while, we are starting a new series. If you've been coming to our youth group for a while, we are we're also starting a new series um, in, uh, in 1 Corinthians. And uh, just to be honest, I'm going to be frank here. I have no idea how long this is going to take, okay? Like, it might take, like, a year and a half, two years, I don't know. Um, so you just have to stick around to find out, okay? Um, I'm just kidding. I'm, 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 I'm trying to limit it to, like, a year and a half. Uh, probably, probably. Um, but First Corinthians, you'll find out, okay? But First Corinthians, as we'll see soon enough, um, is a really uh, interesting letter. letter. And so if you guys have your Bibles, uh, and I really do encourage you guys to bring your Bibles to, to Friday night, I invite you to turn with me uh, to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 1 to 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 1 to 3. And as you're turning there, um, just um, my goal tonight is to just give you guys an intro- introduction and, and kind of an overview of what uh, 1 Corinthians will be about. But we'll be focusing uh, primarily on the first three verses. And so this is what the Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 1. He says, Paul called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes to the church of God that is in Corinth to those sanctified in Christ Jesus called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ both their Lord and ours grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ and you know um, as we as we start 1 Corinthians um, we, we find out that we're actually literally reading someone else's mail. Um, of course, it's mail that is nevertheless intended for the whole of God's people for all time. Um, but at, le- at least initially, it was mail that was not originally intended for us to read. Uh, and so here's what I mean. Here's a, a little example. Um, a couple weeks ago, uh, Pastor Tim uh, was giving away uh, some of his books that he had, not been, he had not read for a while. And he had left a stack of them in the, inter- in the church office. And, uh, and one of our interns, uh, May... Uh, happened to be looking through them, and uh, as she was combing through the books, um, she accidentally stumbled upon and read um, a a love letter that G, his wife, had written to to Tim, um, that he had used as a bookmark, okay, uh, in one of his books, and, and I'm sure it was a letter, you know, that I'm sure Tim wanted to keep private between only him and G, and so I don't worry, I asked him for permission, um, and so this is what we're doing as we read. 1 Corinthians, okay? Paul is writing a very personal and stern letter to the Corinthian church that I'm sure the church wanted to keep private to some degree. And so the question and and challenge for for anyone eavesdropping uh, into this conversation is how does God, through a letter like 1 Corinthians, challenge 21st century Christians? How does God challenge these high schoolers right here, all you guys right here, sitting in this room through a letter that was intended for a very specific and ancient 
audience. That is the challenge as we begin. And the goal for tonight's introduction is to convince you that 1 Corinthians has every bit to do with your life as a Christian, especially in our post-Christian world. But in order to do that, uh, we need to ask what 1 Corinthians is about and why Paul is writing this letter. And, you know, in fact, what we come to realize is that this is not the first correspondence that Paul has with the Corinthian church. Um, as we pick up this letter, we find out that 1 Corinthians is actually the second letter that Paul had written to the Corinthian church. Um, in chapter 5, verse 9, Paul refers to a previous letter to Corinth, which means that 1 Corinthians is actually technically 2 Corinthians. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 4, uh, Paul refers to a severe and heavier letter, which means that 2 Corinthians is, is what? 4th Corinthians, 4th Corinthians, 4th Corinthians. And so what we're actually stepping into uh, is an ongoing conversation that Paul has with the Corinthian Christians. And our task is to reconstruct what this conversation was all about and what the problems were. And so you can read this on your own. But we found out, find out in, in Acts chapter 18 that Paul had spent a year and a half uh, in Corinth. Uh, he was pouring his life out for the Corinthians. For the Corinthians, he was uh, evangelizing, he was discipling, uh, and he was meeting with people. And eventually, people uh, came to be followers of Jesus. And he plants a church there, and he moves on to plant other churches, which was normal for most apostles to do. And not long after planting the Corinthian church, Paul starts to get reports of problems with this very church that he had started. And while there were many problems in the Corinthian church, the, the catch-all problem was that the church fundamentally had forgotten their identity as Christians, as God's people. And they began to live according to the cultural standards of their city and time. So what we're really looking at is a church that didn't know how to handle disagreements and differences with each other. It was a church that was divided over popularity and, and social class. It, it was a church that had erected relational barriers and put preferences above people. It was a church that cared more about physical appearances and ability than it did kindness and purity. It was a church that had allowed secular society to seep into their hearts and souls. And if that's the kind of conversation that the Apostle Paul is having with these Corinthian Christians, then we come to realize that not only is Paul speaking to Corinthians, he's actually speaking to us. What we find in 1 Corinthians is that 21st century Christians bear a shocking resemblance to the 1st century. And likewise, the problems of the Corinthian church 2,000 years later bear a haunting resemblance to the problems that we face today. And it's for this reason that the message of 1 Corinthians could not be more relevant for a church and a high school group like ours today in our divided post-Christian society. Many of the problems at Corinth were caused by the Corinthians' tendency to, to worship, to, to think, and to act in ways that were entirely consistent with the culture. But in and through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, Paul is calling us to fundamentally reimagine a new way of being human, which is why the sermon series for 1 Corinthians is called Life Centered on Messiah, a new way of being human human. And so the, the question that we have to ask ourselves is, or rather the statement is, if we are only offensive 
or only attractive to the world and not both, it's because according to Paul, our lives and our imaginations have not been completely shaped and formed by the story of Jesus the Messiah. It's only until our lives have been shaped by this Christian story that we can actually be whom God had intended for us to be in the church. And not only in the church, but also in the world. That is what 1 Corinthians is about. And so as we listen in on the, on, on the first three verses of 1 Corinthians, this is something that we need to remember. This is what the conversation is all about. And so the key idea for uh, tonight's message and the, the key idea for these three verses is that grace and peace can change your life and grace and peace form a distinctive identity. Grace and peace can change your life and grace and peace form a distinctive identity. The first point is that grace and peace can change your life. Take a look at verse 1. Paul called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes. Um, It was a decision that shook the world. It was a decision that turned him from being the most celebrated individual to the most hated individual. Um, It was a decision that he knew would sever his ties with his community, uh, with his friends, with his memories, with his ultimately his way of life. Um, It was a decision that he knew would disappoint his most loyal following and alter and define the rest of his career. But it was a decision that he knew was worth it. And the person that I'm talking about is not the Apostle Paul, but Kevin Durant. When Kevin Durant announced, I know, anticlimactic. When, When Kevin Durant announced that he was taking his talents to the Golden State Warriors, People were, bo- were, were burning their OKC jerseys on the front of their houses. Um, people were calling him a snake and a traitor. Uh, people were saying that he was the single individual that had ruined the NBA. Now, what do Kevin Durant and the Apostle Paul have in common? Well, it was that they both changed teams. They both changed teams that would forever alter the rest of their lives. Before Paul was, was Paul, An apostle of Jesus, the Messiah, he was Saul, the murderer of Jesus' followers. And I want you guys to put your fingers in 1 Corinthians for just a second and flip to Acts chapter 8, verses 1 to 3. Acts chapter 8, verses 1 to 3. A little bio on Saul. And in Acts chapter 8, verses 1 to 3, Luke records for us and he writes, And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen, Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church, and entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now, flip a chapter over to chapter 9, verses 1 to 2. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, the way to Jesus, of course, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. This was was Paul. Now turn back to 1 Corinthians. 
I, you know, I think most of us look at the first few verses of this passage right here, and we just gloss over it to want, and, and we want to get the, the real meat and the content. But what Paul is doing, and what he's doing here is he is signaling us to slow down and to consider what's actually going on. Paul was once, the, was once Saul the murderer, the, the rising star of Judaism. But he is Saul no longer. He is Paul the Apostle, a servant and messenger of Jesus the Messiah. And just, just think about that for a second. We, we just saw this account of Saul, this murderer. And here we see Paul now, a messenger of Jesus. Even Paul's name is a testimony of what the grace of God can do in a sinner's life. Now, I think most of us are thinking that we won't be murderers 10 years from now. And I really hope you guys aren't. Like, I, I better not hear the news like you guys, you know, so-and-so is, you know, committed murder on the Daily Breeze or whatever. Um, but what about the same old resentment and bitterness that you've carried around your parents for years? Can the grace of God change and touch that? What about the same old lust and, and selfishness that you've hidden for years? Can the grace of God change and touch that? Can, can, can grace completely change and disrupt your life? Now, I'm not even talking about how all you need to do is believe, but at the core, do we even believe that because of Jesus, God can change our lives? Do we really believe that? You see, for, for Paul, grace and peace aren't just a set of pleasantries. Grace is far more than just a theological concept. Grace refers to God's unmerited and free favor. Yes, it does. But fundamentally, grace is the power to forgive and to change and turn a person's life around. That is what we see in the life of Paul. And that's also what we see in the life of God's people in Corinth. Take a look at the first half of verse 2. First half of verse 2 says, To the church of God that is in Corinth. The very fact that there is a church of God in Corinth at all is grace. Well, why? What was Corinth like? Well, Corinth was kind of like, you know, the, the L.A. or the New York, the San Francisco, the, the Singapore, you know, shout out to Crazy Rich Asians, or of, of the Roman Empire. Yes. Corinth was the pit stop for people traveling in and around the Mediterranean, whether by land or by sea, which meant that it was a socioeconomic melting pot. It was one of the most internationally diverse cities in the ancient Western world. And because so many people were moving in and out of the city, it also meant that Corinth was also an extremely wealthy city. People flocked to Corinth, making it the second or third largest colony in the Roman Empire. People moved to Corinth to make it big or to start over. Now, what about its... Uh, but, but Corinth was also a city full of hotshots, of people who wanted to be better than they already were. They were a people who were attracted to flashy displays of intellect and physical appearance. It was, it was also known for its sexual promiscuity. There was an ancient joke that if you were called a Corinthian, you were pretty much sexually immoral. What about its religious views? Well, as one of the most ethnically diverse cities in the Mediterranean, Corinth was one of the most religiously pluralistic societies in ancient Rome. 
It was as if you could choose from a cafeteria line of different gods and goddesses of your own choosing. In summary, Corinth was rich. It was powerful. It was advanced. It was highly educated and sexually and religiously progressive in every possible way. And it was under this kind of cultural environment and religious context that the church of God was birthed. And if you think about it, if you really think about it, that does not make sense. It doesn't make sense that there is a church in Corinth at all. What we're talking about is a bunch of sexually progressive, rich, and highly educated people giving their lives to Jesus the Messiah. Giving up their old ways. The very fact that there is a church of God at all in Corinth is a testimony to what God can do in a city like Corinth. Or a place like Torrance, or Los Angeles, or your school, or your classmates, or the most hardened individual. These weren't people who were part of an existing church and started a new, a new one. They, they didn't grow up going to church like you guys. They didn't have parents who serve in the church. They weren't people who had the privilege of going to youth group. These were people who lived in the city and under the Corinthian way of life their entire lives. These were people with no Christian influence whatsoever. And I think this is just something that American Christians will never be able to understand. Because there is literally a church in almost every block of Torrance where we come to church every Sunday morning and take Jesus for granted every Sunday morning. Corinth had none of this. They were the first church. They literally were the first church there. They were literally called First Church of Jesus in Corinth. And it goes to show how radical the grace of God is in a person's life, in a city's life, where a bunch of pagan people so entrenched in their old way of living, their love of pleasure and knowledge and their, and their idolatries and putting themselves first and actually giving themselves over to Jesus. Listen to the words of Paul later in chapter 6, verses 9 to 11. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. But take, take a listen to verse 11. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Listen to those five, six words. And, and such were some of you. That is grace. Never ever underestimate the presence and power of God's grace in your life, in this church, in this community. Don't even underestimate these opening lines in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. You know, what's surprising about these opening verses is that Paul hasn't even gotten to talk, talking about the bad stuff yet. Remember, we are entering into an ongoing dialogue that Paul has with the Corinthian Christians. The unique purpose of 1 Corinthians is to call people out on sin. And with all of the divisiveness and the sexually immoral problems going on at this church, you would think that the first thing that Paul would tell them is, look, you need to get your act together 
and fix your problems before you can be God's people. But no matter how bad the problems are in the Corinthian church, take a look again at what Paul says in verses 2 to 3. He says, To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. What does he say? Regardless of good or bad, he says that they are still, they are still the church of God. And even more than that, they are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together. What What does that mean? Well, it means that the status of this church rests not so much on how much or how little they have resisted the influence of sin but on God's initiative, God's prerogative, God's purpose to preserve and set apart his people. It means that your identity as a Christian does not rest on how much you have cleaned up your life or how much or, or how little you resisted temptation to sin or how long you spent on your devotions or how, or, or how hard you were holding on to Jesus. And obviously all of that matters. God very much cares about that. But your identity as a Christian fundamentally rests on God's initiative to hold on to you. In fact, the great theologian Jonathan Edwards once said that the only thing that you contributed to your salvation was the sin that nailed Jesus to the cross. You know, I suspect that the reason why the grace of God has been emptied of its power in our time today is because we have underestimated it and that we have tamed it. If God has saved and transformed the worst of sinners, is it possible for God to save and transform the most ordinary of sinners? I hope that none of you guys are ever like Paul, or I guess Saul. But the point is that if God's grace can change someone like Saul, can God change your life? The Apostle Paul, just a few verses later, says the word of the cross, the scandalous message of grace is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Grace isn't just a concept. Grace is power. Grace is what turns Saul's into Paul's, Corinthians to Christians, sinners to saints, lovers of self to lovers of of God. If Jesus really is who he promised to be, the, the, the promised Messiah, God in flesh, if he really is who he promises to be, then that changes everything. Because it means that his grace really can enter into your life and change your entire existence. Grace and peace can change your life. The second point is that grace and peace form a distinctive identity. Grace and peace form a distinctive identity. Take a look again at verse 2. To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. If you take a look back at the beginning of verse 2, who were they? Well, they were the church of God. 
And the Greek word for church here is ekklesia, which is literally translated those who have been called out. And he says to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together. And the words for sanctified and saint is the same word that means holy or set apart. And the question is called out and set apart for what? God has called us out to be a sacred and redemptive influence in the world. In forming a people for himself, he is calling you to be who you are and to image his likeness to the world. To be God's attractive, but nevertheless distinct and set apart community in the world. And so built within our identity is a purpose, formation and function. Here's a little illustration that the Titanic had an infamous problem. It was built with the intention of being in the water. And built within its design was its purpose to carry a fleet of passengers across the Atlantic. That's what a ship is meant to do. It's meant to be in the water and carry a group of people in such a way that water would not enter into the ship. But I think we all know the story. The famous crisis of the Titanic was that water began to enter into the boat, sinking more than 1,500 people in the water. And this was happening to the church in Corinth. Take a look back at verse 2 again. It says, To the church of God that is in Corinth. Stop there. Where is the church of God located? Corinth. But here's the thing. One commentator writes that the problem wasn't that the church was in Corinth, but that too much Corinth was in the church. The problem isn't that Christians live in Corinth, or that they have planted their roots there, or that they have made friends and they have jobs there. The problem was that Corinth could not be in them, or else they, like the Titanic, will sink, and so will their influence. The central problem of the Corinthian church was that you cannot tell the difference between a Corinthian and a Christian. And like the Corinthian church, the challenge of being a Christian in Torrance or in your own schools or in your own workplace isn't that we eat at our, at our favorite you know, pho restaurant or that we have friends here or that we shop at Del Amo. The problem is that when the way of life of your student body or the values and priorities of your non-Christian friends, the morality of what we watch on Netflix or the worldview of our culture begins to seep into the life of God's sacred people, we are no longer able to mirror God's redemptive influence in the world. That is what's at stake. The problem of the Corinthian church and the modern church today is that we suffer from identity amnesia and have failed to be who we were intended to be. When we worship and act just like our non-Christian friends do, we have forgotten, forgotten our identity as God's called out people. When you see grades as more important than Jesus, social upward mobility more attractive than kindness, you have forgotten your identity as God's called out people. And at the same time, at the same time, when you hate and act in smug condescension toward non-Christians, when we look at our classmates or the people on our sports teams or our coworkers, and we immediately think to ourselves, what the heck is wrong with these people? We have forgotten our identity. When you wholesale approve of what non-Christians do 
And when you can no longer show compassion to those same non-Christians, you have lost your identity altogether. The pastor, Martin Lloyd-Jones, had asked an important question that I think our church has not adequately answered. He asked this question. He said, he asked, how was it that the early Christians who were but a handful of people had such a profound impact on the pagan world in which they lived? This was his answer. It was because they were what they were. They were what they were. The problem with the Corinthian church was that they weren't and they were not acting what they were. And we come to find that every single problem the Corinthian church experienced had grown out of their unwillingness to let the story of Jesus the Messiah fully reshape their Gentile Greco-Roman lives. Every problem that this high school group experiences, whether it's division or a lack of love for one another or any kind of condescension or any kind of failure to put Jesus first in our lives, grows out of our unwillingness to let the Christian story fully reshape our lives. And if you think that the story of Jesus is simply that Jesus died for my sins so I can go to heaven and I don't have to care about how I live or care about others because, you know, Jesus forgives me, then the story of Jesus the Messiah has not been fully absorbed into your life. If you have really given your life to Jesus, it is impossible, and I repeat, it is impossible for your life to remain the same because his story changes Absolutely everything about your life. Which means that your first identity is not defined by where you live or who your parents are or who your friends are or where you are on the social totem pole or what your grades are, but first and foremost, Jesus. And because of Jesus, everything else follows after this is the reason why Paul will devote the rest of this letter, bless you, will devote the rest of this letter patiently helping us grasp our true identity and inviting us to see our world in dramatically new ways in light of the story of Jesus. The way that we act, the way we worship, our, our estimations of people, the way we even eat and drink must be different precisely because you are what you are, holy, set apart. How was it, how was it that the early Christians who were but a handful of people had such a profound impact on a pagan world in which they lived? It was because they were what they were. You know, another interesting thing about this passage is the way Paul describes the Corinthians. I don't know if you guys noticed this, but the, the first three verses of 1 Corinthians chapter 1 are actually steeped in heavy Old Testament imagery. The Corinthians aren't the first group of people whom God calls to be holy. And this is something that we learn in Sunday school. The first group was actually the nation of Israel. 
In the book of Leviticus, God calls the nation of Israel to be holy because he is holy and because he has separated them from the rest of the nations. Why? It was because as a community called out by God, Israel was supposed to be the set-apart group of people who would attract the nations to come and to experience what life with God as the one true God and King was like. They were to mirror what God was like to the world. In calling them to be holy, God was saying that through you, I will become known to the world and through you, ultimately, I will draw the world to myself. That was their function as a kingdom of priests and as his holy nation. Again, function was built into their formation. And unfortunately, I think we all know how the rest of the story goes. The problem with Israel wasn't that Israel was in Canaan, but that too much of Canaan was in Israel. Israel had become indistinguishable from the rest of the nations that they were supposed to witness to. God's intention has always been that a set-apart and transformed Israel would transform the world. God was going to rescue the world and the human race through his set-apart people. But with Israel's failure, the question remains is who was going to demonstrate God to the world with Israel's failure? Who would be the priests who would image God's presence in the world? That is the central dilemma of the Old Testament. But it was a dilemma that God saw coming. And it was a dilemma that God himself set to rectify. The reason why I exclusively refer to Jesus as the Messiah was intentional. In referring to Jesus as the Messiah, I'm referring back to the dilemma that God himself set out to address. God's single plan to rescue the world and the human race initially centered upon the call of Israel. But it was a call that was ultimately realized in Jesus, the Messiah. Israel's representative, God's promised and anointed servant. As God in flesh, Jesus perfectly mirrored what God was like to the world. It's why the Apostle Paul, Paul calls Jesus the image of the invisible God. And though Jesus was in the world, the world was not in Jesus. Though Jesus lives in the muck and mire of sin, the muck and mire of sin was not in Jesus. And though Jesus had met with tax collectors and sinners, with with the sick and with the poor, with the the self-righteous and the proud, he did only what God could and would do. He would carry their shame and their sorrow. He would die for their sins, suffering the wrath of God. And he would be resurrected as the true king of Israel and the world. That's exactly what God is like. A God who would die for sinners to bring them home to himself. And it is through this rich messianic story that the Corinthians, that Lighthouse Community Church, that this high school group and staff must be shaped by. It is this story that must shape and define your life. The Apostle Paul envisions God's church to be the continuation of what God had always intended Israel to be. A people who are to represent the Messiah to the whole world. Words of the Messiah, backed up by a life centered on Messiah. I'm going to close here. 
Take a look back at the second half, verse 2 to 3. Call to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice how Paul says the saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul is already foreshadowing a main theme that we will see over and over again in 1 Corinthians. Unity and diversity. Why does he talk about it here? Why is that important? Well, on the night that Jesus is betrayed, he prays for his immediate disciples. But at the end of his prayer, he also prays, prays for his future disciples. He says, I do not ask for these only, but also for these who will believe in me through their word, that they may be one. Just as you, Father, are in me and I, in you, and I in you. Why? That they also may be in us, so that the world may know and believe that you have sent me. According to Jesus, the unity of Christians from all, all over the world, no less this high school group right here, is the final proof that Jesus really is who he claims to be. The God King who laid his life down for sinners. That by our love for one another, the world would know that we are Jesus' disciples. Can you believe that? And what's really unfortunate nowadays is that the church is actually very fractured and divided. And it's tarnishing the witness of Jesus. Unity and diversity. When the saints are in full accord, united by love, it's what Jesus the Messiah had always intended in his death and resurrection. A ransomed corporate, yet multi-personality, multi-ethnic, multi-gifted, multi-storied people. That is true peace. The peace that Paul talks about at the end of verse 3. That's true shalom, the way that things were intended always to be. You know, it's easy to look at this letter and think that Paul is all about owning some fools, you know, who are living in sin. That, that isn't Paul's chief concern. Paul's central concern in this letter, here and throughout his life and work, was quite simply Jesus the Messiah. What Paul wants you and me to get hold of most is what it means to have Jesus centered in the middle of your story, in the middle of your worship, in the middle of your life, in the middle of your thoughts, and even your imagination. And Paul is convinced, he really is, Paul is convinced that if you can get the story of Jesus, that the meaning of his life, death, and resurrection rubbed into the center of your heart and life, all of our issues will sort themselves out. He really does believe that. Because when our lives are centered on Messiah, we will live as God had intended always for us to live. Not the old way of being human, but a new way. Let's pray. Father, that is our, our heart's desire. That you, as you have formed a people for yourself, a people who have been set apart for your purposes, a people who whom you love, a people whom you adore, a people whom you have set apart to experience your love, the love of the church, the love of each other. You've also built within 
our identity a function and a purpose. And that function and purpose is to mirror what you are like to this world, to be different, to be set apart. And Father, I pray that a tangible way that through which we do that is, even now as we talk about it, unity in this high school group. And Lord, we're not talking about homogeneity, people acting the same or dressing the same or talking the same or thinking the same. They're really people who are centered on Messiah because he really is the one who connects all of us together. And so, Father, that is our heart's desire, or at least I do hope that it is our heart's desire, that you would form a people, as you have already done so, a people who will reflect you simply through our unity. And so, Father, we love you. We thank you. pray that you would help us as we continue on in our study of First Corinthians. You will, I know that you will challenge us. And so, God, we do seek your grace as we do seek to sit under the preaching of your word, under First Corinthians, under what you have to say to us. Do change us. Father, we thank you. We ask all in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. All right, you guys are.